0: Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a former Brooklynite and the current Istanbul bureau chief for The Washington Post on Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi's disappearance and how it's reverberating around the Middle East.
1: There's this disconnect between what the government has been saying and what investigators have been leaking, and that has a lot to do with Turkey's desire not to completely blow up their relationship with Saudi Arabia.
0: And then, well-read Black Girl's Glory, Adam, about the importance of recognizing ourselves in literature. It wasn't so much a question of seeing myself in a book that changed me as a person.
2: Yes, representation matters, but there is more to transformation than looking into a
0: book the way you look into a mirror. Hi, and welcome to the show. Just ahead, Well-Read Black Girl returns to Brick. Well, at least the founder does to talk about her upcoming book release and her second annual festival. But first, we're joined electronically by the Washington Post's Istanbul bureau chief, a former Brooklynite, by the way, Kareem Fahim, has been covering the story of the disappearance of Saudi dissident and journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi, a U.S. resident Washington Post columnist and critic of the Saudi regime, entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd. He was there to get a document he needed in order to marry his Turkish fiance. He hasn't been heard from since. Many stories have been swirling about what happened, stories about torture, dismemberment and murder. We've asked Kareem to help us make sense of the events, the various accounts, and what this saga has meant for the region and U.S. relations between both Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Kareem, thanks for taking the time today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Kareem, can you please give us a brief rundown of the events that have occurred so far?
1: Sure. So, as you said, uh, on October 2nd, at about 1.30 in the afternoon, Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, and he was there to get a document that would prove that he was divorced mm-hmm. so that he could remarry. Um, and this was supposed to be a pretty routine visit, but as you say, he, he over the last year, has been um, a, a rather visible critic of the Saudi government. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written a column for the Washington Post. And more than that, you know he he is a he's a very well known figure in Saudi Arabia. He has been very close to the to government ruling circles in the past. He's a well known political commentator, mm-hmm. and so you know he was more more than just um, an ordinary dissident. Um, but uh, you know, as some have put it, he was seen almost as a defector from the government. So. You know, we know and have reported that over the last year, there were what he told friends were several attempts to lure him back to Saudi Arabia with promises of jobs or promises that the Saudi leadership trusted him and that he would face no trouble if he returned to the country, and these were seen as attempts to silence him. We also know that U.S. officials using intelligence intercept captured conversations of Saudi officials talking about a plot to lure him back to the country. So this was clearly a man whose life um, could be in danger. Even so, he entered the consulate that day. Uh, He left his phones with his fiancée outside. He left instructions with her telling her who she should call in the event that he did not emerge and that was the last time that anybody saw him. Since his disappearance, you know, a, a, a couple of days after his disappearance, uh, Turkish officials said they believed that he had been killed inside the consulate. I think it was about four days later that mm-hmm. they said that they had reached this conclusion, and they and they outlined very early on this this sort of elaborate operation. Um, by the Saudi government, which involved sending a 15-man team from Riyadh, the Saudi capital, essentially to kill uh, Jamal. You know, over, over the days that, you know, it's been more than two weeks now, but during that time they've, they've slowly released information mm-hmm. about the operation. They've released pictures of the participants. They've released flight logs.
0: And this is the Turkish government releasing this
1: information. Yeah. Well, that that's a good question because the, the the Turkish government officially has said nothing or very little about Jamal's disappearance. They they you know the the Turkish president um, has not even acknowledged you know the sort of widespread consensus that he was killed inside the consulate. Um, but Turkish officials have been leaking to the media, both Turkish media and to the Western media, the details of, of, of what they think happened. So there's this, um, you know, there's this disconnect between what, what, the, what the government has been saying and what investigators have been leaking. And that has a lot to do with Turkey's desire not to completely blow up their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Right. And to force them force them to somehow admit what happened without without facing a backlash from Saudi Arabia, which is a you know, very powerful country in the Middle East mm-hmm. and has the ability to make mischief for the Turks if they want to.
0: Kareem, is the Turkish press an independent press or is it government run?
1: Uh, no increasingly it is not independent you know over the over the last three or four years president Erdogan has really clamped down on independent journalism here mm-hmm. it's the, the country is the leading jailer of journalists and so um, there is a there is a dwindling number of independent news outlets that can that can um, uh, you know r- report um Independently on some of these events that we're watching unfold, so that you know that that that's one of the issues here. Um, but you know, e- even so, in this case, you know, I think I think even sort of independent independent outlets would be sort of anxious to, to to be learning some of the details of what the investigators think happened.
0: Kareem, does that mean that you consider the information coming out credible and backed up by evidence?
1: Well. It, it's a great question, because the, the Turks have yet to release any evidence. On mm. They have said um, and they have told their allies that there are audio recordings of what happened inside the consulate, that there may be video of what happened inside the consulate. They seem fairly certain that they have put most of the case together. And the other thing we have is the Saudi denials, which have not changed. You know, over the last 16 or 17 days, mm. um, the Saudis the Saudis maintain that Jamal walked out of the consulate and they have no idea what happened to him. Nobody thinks that that's the case either, because it would be pretty easy for them to produce some camera footage that that would show that, and they and they have yet to do that.
0: Kareem, can you let me know? Because I think a lot of people are wondering uh, th- or have this question top of mind right now. How is the U.S. involved in this whole situation and this tragedy? It seems like both countries are really pressing um, to get the U.S. to back them up, being Turkey and Saudi Arabia. But is there any sense where the chips are going to fall on this one?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, both both countries are looking for 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 US support in this case. So far, the signs have been that the US is inclined to strongly back the Saudi government. President Trump has been one of the strongest allies for the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. It's a relationship that Trump speaks of often. It's obviously a longstanding U.S. alliance, but the Trump administration has taken it to a new level and seen the Saudis as a linchpin of the U.S. strategy to counter Iran in the Middle East. Right. So they're they're heavily they're heavily dependent on the Saudis. They also sell weapons to the Saudis, and they have been. Fairly clear during during you know this current this current crisis that they are inclined to believe the Saudis. I mean, several times President Trump has said that the Saudis have told them that they deny that they did anything to Jamal Khashoggi, right. and you know, and he just doesn't know, and and that you know, other people have gone much, much further in demanding that the Saudis carry out a credible investigation and punish people responsible.
0: Kareem, can I ask, what's next in your reporting on this?
1: Well, tonight we're reporting on Turkey and Turkey's role in in keeping up the pressure on the Trump administration and the Saudis by, you know, with the steady stream of leaks to the media, which have been included, you know, really grisly details of what happened inside the consulate. So we're, we're working on that. And then the next thing we're, you know, the, the thing we're waiting for is Saudi Arabia's explanation of what happened. You know, the, the Secretary Secretary of State Pompeo just said earlier today that they'd like to give the Saudis a couple more days to explain mm-hmm. what happened. You know, we widely expect that the Saudis w- will assume some responsibility. But the question is, is whether they blame a high-level official or they pin it on, you know, one of, maybe one of the men, you know, who uh, who flew to Turkey or, or some, some lower-level official.
0: Right. I look forward to more of your reporting on what's going on. Thank you so much for your time, yeah. Kareem.
1: Thanks for letting me talk about it. I appreciate it.
0: Coming up, our conversation with well-read black girls, Glory Adam. It started with a t-shirt, and now it's a brilliant collection of essential American reading. That's according to one early review. Glory Adams' Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves, is set to hit bookstores later this month. It features essays by black women writers, curated by the founder of the popular book club, on the importance of recognizing ourselves in literature. And Well-Read Black Girl is also a festival. Last year, it was held here at Brick House. This year, it's at Pioneer Works and Red Hook on November 10th. To tell us about all these things, we welcome for the first time, Glory Adam on 112BK. Thanks for joining us, Glory.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: This is so much fun to have you here because we we go back a little bit and I've been really enjoying your work for what feels like a really long time though. The other day I sat down and looked at the years and it's really not that long. It is not that long at all. It all started in
2: 2015. Mm-hmm. So the first time I actually put the Instagram post out into the world was May of 2015 and maybe like two months later is when I did the newsletter.
0: So the timeline is relatively short in the grand scheme of right. things. It- it really is. Now, talk to me about why you started Well Read Black Girl Book Club. Like, how? What put that thought in your head? Even. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be
2: quite honest, the reasons were were selfish. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make a space to create new friends. I was new in New York. Um, and I've always had my books to rely on, but I wanted mm-hmm. to build a community around that. Um, my boyfriend gave me this T-shirt, the brilliant T-shirt you referenced, mm-hmm. and it was Well-Read Black Girl was just his nickname for me. He, right. We've been together for several years, and um, he has a lot of different nicknames. Sometimes he calls me Puff because of my afro. Right. Um, Well-Read was another thing like he would say out of affection, and he put it on the T-shirt, gave it to me, and I just started to wear it. I'd be out in the world, talking to people, at the grocery store, mm-hmm. on the subway, you know, Always in cloud close proximity in New York, right? And so people would say, "Oh, where'd you get your shirt from?" And it would go like, "My boyfriend made it." And then it would go like, "Oh, I'm reading this book right now." So they would pull something out of their tote bag, and we would have a completely random conversation about Toni Morrison on the A train.
0: That sounds amazing.
2: It, it was just really just like genuine and warm and. I, I wanted to continue that feeling in every aspect of my life. And so I was like, okay, like there's something here. What if I really tried to, to be very intentional about building the community and starting a book club? So the first sessions we had were really just my, with my girlfriends. Mm-hmm. It was a couple of women that I either went to college with or I knew here in New York and we came together. And a couple years later, now it's, it's this book. So, so right. it happened really organically
0: and unexpectedly. You know, I I feel like a lot of people always ask the question of like, you know, why do you think people need these spaces? But black girl to black girl, I don't want to ask that question. I know exactly why we need these spaces. But I do want to ask how it felt to put well-read black girl out in the world and have what feels like women who were strangers immediately respond to it with so much fervor and interest. Right. Well, the, even the words well-read black girl,
2: they are a call to action. There mm. is, a, There was a time and space where we were not allowed to read and write, right? Like, it, like that mm-hmm. was illegal, <laughs> you know? So the fact right. that we have this space to tell our stories, talk about identity, talk about black womanhood under no restrictions, you mm-hmm. know, our stories are completely centered and it's not under the white gaze. It's simply us communicating with one another, being honest, being super vulnerable. And it goes beyond just like the characters in a book. It's really mm-hmm. talking about our lives and how we can support one another. Right. And because I started this yearning for friendship, that was like my mission and goal. It's like to meet other women like-minded and support us. Mm-hmm. It transformed mm-hmm. into a whole other thing because people started to come to me and say, Well, I want to be in publishing, I want to be a writer, how can I do it? And right. I don't have a, a background in publishing per se, right? But I knew that I'm a reader and I know what I like to read. Mm-hmm. And if I could be supportive and cheer other people on in that way, that I mean, that felt
0: really important. But you know, since you started Well Read Black Girl, the literary landscape has, I think, changed yeah, a little bit. So, yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about what patterns you're seeing and difference in, the, oh, yeah, and like what, what's coming out?
2: Well, what's happening now is. Is people are really paying attention to the voices of Black women and mm-hmm. people of color in general. Like mm-hmm. we have a lot of like diversity movements. We're looking at um, publishers are looking at how to make the space more equitable, which mm-hmm. is like more important than simply just saying like let's make it more diverse. Like how can we make it fair and how can we introduce uh, new publications and new voices into the publishing industry without it making it. Feel tokenized? Like right. I'm very like wary of that. Like let's not just simply say like we have this one black person here and they're like you know they're the person that we should all read. It's not right. about that. It's like having varied intergenerational, varied regions. Like I'm very curious mm-hmm. about the South, the Midwest. Like let's not just say that publishing is only in New York and L. A. Right. You know, just like opening it all up and having people speak from themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like the work that I do, like I don't usually. I'm excited to be on the show here with you. Yeah, but it's like it's really. But the work isn't about me. Like you don't. When right. you look on the Instagram, you don't see me kind of like selfieing it up. It's like right. really just about the books and the work and how we can highlight more Black women and more Black stories. And it, it's and it's changing because I'm getting more questions less about diversity and more about uh, equity. And I'm I'm happy about that. Talk to me a little bit about that difference. When I'm in spaces, I ask a lot of questions because I'm new to publishing, and in a way, to the industry or the hierarchy of it. I'm just like, I, I don't know what the rules are. So right. I ask, you know, how can we invite? Um, most recently, I did a panel where there were like me and a bunch of white men mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like I was like the most qualified person. And I was like, you know what? I know two other black women that would be great for this panel. Can I have them to be even, even take my spot if that's necessary. Right. Like just finding entry ways to introduce new people into the space. And even the, the, the relationship between editors and agents, right? right? So that's a whole another thing where you don't see a lot of black editors and publishers. Thankfully, we have Don Davis at 37 Inc and at Atria, right. but that is not a common practice, no. having more black imprints. I really look to Jamia Wilson at Feminist Press. She's an incredible executive director, mm-hmm. and she really guides the space to be equal and uh, feminist-driven right. and looks at how to really introduce new work. So I recently did a um, a wonderful contest with them where they were like, they did a call and they had all these great writers come in and she was like, Glory, who do you know? Like, who can we like share this contest with so more black women will apply and be part of? And I, I we went from just like sharing the promotion to me being like one of the judges because right. I just thought it was like so important. So finding things like that and finding women that can be able to like that message and have that call to action.
0: Like and thinking a, outside the box, it e- seems exactly. like. You know, I think part of the, um, I want to say, not, not so much the pleasure, but maybe like the privilege. Part of the yeah. privilege of not always knowing the rules right. is that you then don't feel constrained exactly. by the rules. So is that why you felt like you could take something like the well read Black Girl Book Club and yeah. turn it into a festival.
2: Yeah. Well I I gained so much support from the online community and like mm-hmm. the physical community when we have the book club. Like it was just everyone was just saying, like you should do this. We believe in you. You should do this. And yeah. in I mean it feels I'm like super excited by that and I'm like thank you for trusting me and feeling that I have the ability to do this but right. still sometimes scary and, and um, I had to just like step outside of myself and say like what are like the basic things I need to create this mm-hmm. and how and of course it's like money you know right. how do I raise this money how do I get resources how do I have people invest in this idea further than just let the book club mm-hmm. and once I had a good outline and I like those like questions were answered. I was like, okay, like let me move forward, mm-hmm. and maybe it's a little bit of naivety. Like I'm just kind of like, oh, let me try it, right. and if it doesn't work, like you know, we can do something else. It's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm really not afraid to try something and fail at it. So if last year had not worked, it would have been totally okay. Mm-hmm. I would have just like moved into another direction. But thankfully, it did, and it allowed. Um, I really felt like the festival was really the catalyst of the collection too. Right. It allowed me to like move forward with the anthology because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not an editor, you know, so this was, like, a whole new experience for me, too. So it was, like, really the belief of the community and the authors that have become more than just authors in my life. They really become friends and mentors. Yeah. So, like, I ended up talking to tiari jones a lot about the festival because mm-hmm. i wasn't sure if i was going to do it and if it like if it made sense because originally i was like maybe i'll wait and do it in 2018 and right. we had a coffee date and she was like no do it now like look at this look at this structure maybe if you did this pay like if you did like raise this much money and talk to this person mm-hmm. like well, she really encouraged me and gave me like solid advice on how to approach it uh, and i did that with a lot of like close friends where i just kind of like workshopped and brainstormed on how best to do it. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's like relying on like my community and friends to to figure out the
0: next steps. I like that. It's sort of like creating your own board of directors. Yes. And I love the idea of having that. almost like a, a council that you can go to. Yes. Um, who you trust. I was wondering and I hate to put you on the spot, yeah. but I was wondering if you could read maybe thirty seconds or so oh, yeah. from the book. Just oh, any yeah, passage sure. you think you'd like to yeah,
2: let me share
0: with us today.
2: Um, you know what, maybe I'll read from Tiari. Like I opened it up and it went and went straight there. Tiari Jones, her own best thing. I wouldn't say that I discovered myself in books when I was a student at Spelman College. All my life I had been surrounded by images of myself. My first black doll was a brown girl named Tamu who announced I'm black and I'm proud. When I pulled the string in the center of her back, As a baby, I teed on board books featuring children explaining how much they loved eating vegetables and being black. As a grade schooler, I sat at my teacher's feet as she gave a dramatic reading of Phil Hall likes me, I reckon maybe. I had no idea that there were black children out in the world deprived of images of themselves. Keep in mind that this was Atlanta, Georgia in the 1970s and 1980s. This was Chocolate City, just after the Civil Rights Movement. We had our black mayor, black school board president, black police chief. As my father would say with satisfaction, we have black everything down here. We were segregated, but prosperous. I understood that the United States was majority white in the same way that I understood that the earth was 70% water. I knew it, but standing on dry land, I couldn't quite believe in it. So for me, it wasn't so much a question of seeing myself in a book that changed me as a person. Yes, representation matters, but there is more to transformation than looking into a book the way you look into a mirror. Instead, at Spelman College, I learned to understand literature as a means of unraveling the thorny questions of my life as a black woman. Mm. Literature wasn't just about inclusion. It was the springboard to intense questioning. I have written and spoken extensively about the various moments of great awakenings that I experienced courtesy of the novels of Alice Walker, Gail Jones, Octavia Butler, and the great titan of the black female canon, Toni Morrison. At Spelman, we did more than read the novels. We took apart and shuffled the components. We talked about the plots, and we fought amongst ourselves about the interpretations of the themes we would veer from the page and discuss the implications of our own young lives.
0: I love that. Isn't so love that so wonderful? I love so much. It is wonderful. Now talk to me about how I get this book.
2: Yes, yes. So the first place that you should get this book is at your independent bookstore. I'm very adamant about folks supporting their local bookstores, their mm-hmm. local libraries. So if you're in Brooklyn, you can go to Greenlight Bookstore. You can go to Bookstore Magic. You can go to Word Bookstore. There's mm-hmm. like so many wonderful places in Brooklyn. And in Manhattan, just a city, go yes. to a bookstore and purchase a book. Yes. And if, you know, you happen to be unable to walk to your local bookstore library, you should go to IndieBound and support it through an indie website that supports independent publishers. So I, I think those are the two primary ways. And then there's the other way, which
0: is Amazon. Yes. But that's the, that's, <laughs> that's the final call. That's the final
1: call.
2: That's, <laughs> that's the final call. call. The
0: first okay. one should be your bookstore. <laughs> and the festival, if they want to come yes, to the festival, the how festival, do they do that?
2: tickets are still on sale. And as you said before, it's Saturday, November 10th at uh, Pioneer Works in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And the tickets, if you buy a ticket for $55, you were able to have experience the full day and also receive a book. Um, and then for 45 it's general admission. And then we also have special student tickets that can be Purchase as well for 25. So the tiers are 25, 45, and 55.
0: Thank you so much, Gloria. Yes. You're
2: have welcome. Thank day. you for having me. Thank you for being this here. Was so Thank this was great. This was a lot
0: of fun to have. You. Thank you. And now, some news. Several Brooklyn startup companies are pioneering ways to recycle everything from fabric to computers. These local entrepreneurs may help the city achieve its zero waste goal, which calls for no longer sending waste to landfills by 2030. While the city's sanitation department already collects 1,760 tons of recyclables each day, that's still outweighed by a daily haul of 10,500 tons of residential and institutional garbage shipped through facilities like the new Southwest Brooklyn Marine Transfer Station. Among the Brooklyn startups aiming to make a dent in the trash pipeline are Rise Products, which is turning beer waste into flour, Fab Scrap, which is repurposing fabric scraps, and Earth Angel, a company that consults and implements low-impact standards for film crews. Oh, how varied is our trash. On Tuesday, investors, growers, entrepreneurs, community leaders, and elected officials came together at the Metropolitan Center in Manhattan to hear about opportunities in a regulated cannabis market. In New York State, Senator Liz Krueger, Senate sponsor of the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, feels the medical marijuana model was flawed in maintaining a vertical monopoly. She wants to allow a broad array of licenses for different types and sizes of companies. The state liquor authority model allows for mom-and-pop stores and small-batch brewers to succeed, she said, and she wants to replicate that with pots. Many suspects busted on low-level narcotics possession charges across Kings County will now get a chance to participate in counseling programs in exchange for avoiding community service and potential jail time, according to the borough's top prosecutor. District Attorney Eric Gonzalez's so-called Project CLEAR program offers drug users arrested for carrying small amounts of illegal substances a chance to receive treatment for their habit and clear their record without facing a judge. The DA has announced he will expand it to the entire borough after piloting it in parts of southern Brooklyn last February. We are just under two weeks from Halloween, and next week we're going to start getting spooky here on 112BK with the Brooklyn Paranormal Society. So until then, we can all practice bending a spoon or summoning a ghost or something. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Boghossian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hageseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Assis Isham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.